1979, there was a um, excavation, famous excavation, led by an archaeologist named Gerald Barquet. Not Gerald, I'm sorry, fake news. Gabriel Barquet. <laughs> and Gabriel Barquet is the archaeologist who was part of a very famous discovery that uh, still is talked about among Old Testament scholars today because it's difficult to imagine it topped uh, because of the age of records. And um, it was part of these tombs uh, that dated back to the 6th century B.C. And uh, we're talking about the days of Jeremiah the prophet, okay? Well, what Barquet discovered in 1979, thanks to a particular assistant in his crew, were in one of the tombs two silver scrolls. And these were very tiny scrolls. I mean, we're talking things that could just fit in the palm of your hand. We're not talking massive scrolls. And these are kept in Jerusalem at present day on display because of their significance. Uh, they had been rolled very tightly into cylinders and buried. And uh, when these things were unearthed and unrolled, uh, what they noticed is that on these two silver scrolls were the words of the blessing in number six. Uh, which is quite a remarkable find. And to this day, this is the oldest outside the Bible citation of a biblical text that's been discovered. And so in 1979, this uh, has made a mark in biblical studies archaeology uh, as something outside the Bible that is alluding to or citing directly quite uh, is, is uh, quite the case. These uh, verses from number six, this blessing and, and what that should at least suggest to us is that long after the days of Moses and into the 6th century BC, during the last decades of the Old Testament era, one of the things that was uh, written and housed and ultimately kept and buried was this language from number six. It really spanned the gamut of Israel's history from the days of Moses toward the end of the Old Testament era. This was an important blessing for the people. Some have called this passage the Lord's Prayer of the Old Testament. I really like that idea. The Lord's Prayer is very memorable, very concise. We find it in Matthew chapter 6. What if, what if we were to adopt that language of, uh, of describing it here with number 6? That this is like the Lord's Prayer of the Old Testament. Something that we are calling upon the Lord to do with blessing and uh, the priests being the mediators of that. Um, I, sh I should emphasize a couple big ideas before we look at some of the, the language more specifically. And uh, that is the placement of this. You know, Numbers doesn't open, the, bo the book that is, with chapter 1, with this blessing from Aaron and the priests to the people. There's a lot of counting. A lot of counting in Numbers 1, Numbers 2, Numbers 3, Numbers 4. Chapter 5 has a little bit different content, but prior to this, um, there has been a lot of attention given to specific segments of people. We're counting people 20 and up who are going to fight. We're counting people who are from Levi's tribe who could be priests. We're counting people from this uh, line of, uh, of uh, Levi's descendants who are going to carry these elements of the tabernacle. And who's going to carry the screens and the poles? Who's going to carry the frames and the Ark of the Covenant? There's, there's a, a lot of attention in these earlier chapters to segments of Israel's camp. And then at the beginning of chapter 6, we saw a subset of Israelites called the Nazarites who are able to take a voluntary and temporary vow of separation and focus and holiness. Um, that, what I'm trying to emphasize is that prior to our passage tonight, even through chapter 621, there are segments of Israelites' camp that are addressed. Something changes here. 
This is, in chapter 622, a blessing that is to be for all of the Israelites. This is something that's for the young and the old, the men and the women. This is for Nazarite and non-Nazarite. This is for Levite and non-Levite. This is for everybody 20 and up and everybody 20 and below. And so no matter what their age, no matter what other segment or tribe or clan that they fall within, those kinds of segmented attention points are not reiterated here. This is a whole community blessing. And we, we should feel the importance of that. It's as if it has been building up to this literary moment. This is not arbitrarily placed. None of Scripture is. Uh, instead, we recognize that this is a capstone, this moment of blessing and pronouncement of blessing, a capstone to other segments of Israel's camp that have gotten focus. Now we're zooming out. We're looking at this beautiful prayer and blessing from the priests upon the people of God. So whereas the Nazarite vow belonged to certain individuals who took it on, while other instructions about tabernacle transportation depended on who you were descended from, that's not the case here. And then the really good news about that is that even though the Lord intends to order his camp, even though the Lord intends to uh, demarcate boundaries and lines and ages for different reasons, the Lord, at the end here in chapter 6, intends to bless his people. He intends to, this is his idea. He has redeemed them and he dwells with them in the tabernacle. He blesses them through the language here that these uh, priests are to utter before the people. This is the Lord's initiative. Uh, he, he doesn't find the people sort of cowering in the midst of their iniquity thinking, what is it that we could use from the Lord? Rather, the Lord says to Moses, here's what I want you to say to Aaron and his sons for the people of Israel to hear. The reason this is really good news is I think it hits at a larger idea of our own created purpose, that we were made to dwell with God, who is the fountain of all life and blessing. He didn't make us because he was bored. He didn't make us because he's deficient. He didn't form a universe and create people in his image because he lacked anything. That would be theologically problematic and disastrous. Rather, the God who has no needs, no deficiency, creates image bearers that they might receive the benefits and blessings and life of knowing him. And that in exalting God and glorifying God, we might be satisfied in him, love and commune with him. One of the ways we think about what we received as God's gifts and gracious provision, we use language like blessing. Oh, that's such a blessing. Oh, the Lord really has blessed us. And so we use language like that that's employed here. And it's actually beginning and ending our passage. In verse 23 Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people. And then at the very end, verse 27, So shall they put my name on the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Blessing language frames the whole thing. That's what this is. It goes by different phrases. Sometimes you might hear this called the priestly benediction or a priestly blessing. My Bible's subheading, and maybe yours too, has the word Aaron in there. Aaron's blessing or the Aaronic benediction. And uh, all, all of this language is meant to tie the, the priesthood to the benefits and blessings of God, that they are the mediators of God's words to the people. That's why in verse 22, there's a call for the blessing by bringing near the, the uh, priests. 
And God says to Moses, you need to speak to Aaron and his sons. Why them? High priest and priests. That's why. That means not just anybody. It's not because Aaron and and his sons just happen to be the closest people nearby. Um, God is giving specific information to the mediators, the intercessors of God's people. Thus, you shall bless the people of Israel and you shall say to them. Now, the people of God from the patriarchal era, back with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis, they know what it means to be blessed. God had said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Like he, Abraham's, you know, in the eastern part of the, the rivers, like the, um, the Mesopotamian area with Tigris and Euphrates, all of that side of the ancient Near East. And his ancestry is rooted in idolatry, and God intervenes and comes to him with gracious, powerful revelation and says, Abraham, I'm setting you apart as my own. I'm the living God. I've got promises to you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And all of this stuff is just poured out upon the family of Abraham. And therefore, the descendants of Abraham, these Israelites, are people who descend from a man who heard of God's blessings. I'm going to bless you. And not only this, the people of Israel learn from Leviticus 9 that Aaron and the priests have a role to bless. That's not because the priests have like, you know, magic hands and magic words. This is the designated holy people, these priests, whose words of blessing God will honor and bring to pass in his people by his will. So it works this way in Leviticus 9. It tells us in Leviticus 9.22 that Aaron blesses the people with his upraised hands. He upraised his hands and he put them toward the people and he blessed them, Leviticus 9 says. And then later in verse 23, Aaron and Moses go into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared. What you have, I think, combined here is the importance of the priests, language of blessing, and dwelling with the Lord. The greatest blessing is knowing and being with God himself. Theologians in church history have sometimes called this the beatific vision, that what we are anticipating, what we long for, is that dwelling in fellowship with God that's not hindered by our indwelling sin or mortal flesh, but instead we have been raised unto glory embodied immortality, and we will dwell in new creation with God in unmediated ways so that we will dwell with God and his glory bestowed upon us. All of it is mercy. All of it is grace. We were made for this. What I, what I want us to get a sense of here in, then is that this blessing, it was for those ancient readers and people. Yes, it was for the camp of Israel, but it is itself a sign or a pointer anticipating what we were made for. It's a reminder that what are these Israelites to receive? Well, what ultimately God will give the nations in his son. Blessing and ultimately the blessing that is himself. John Piper had a book title one time that I've mentioned occasionally. And um, the book title is called God is the Gospel. And I, I like the title because of its plainness and clarity. What is it that forgiveness of sin, justification by grace, what is it that coming to uh, receive any of the benefits of the gospel will allow? What is it that eternal life and heaven and new creation mean in its most profound sense? And Piper's answer is, it means we come to know in all the fullness of the capacities God will grant and glorify, we come to know God. 
That's, that is the good news at the heart of all the other benefits of the gospel is the gift of God himself. In this blessing, I think that's the impression we're, to, we're meant to receive. These Israelites are gaining the idea that God has come to give them himself. Now, the question is, will they want God? The question is, will they receive him and love his words? Will they love his truths and delight in his presence? And in verses 24 through 26, we have the content of the blessing. If we look at these, uh, these particular verses, verses 24, 25, and 26, here are some structural things I want you to notice. Notice that in each of these verses, Yahweh's name, capitalized in English Bibles with the Lord in all caps, Yahweh or the Lord is beginning each of these verses. Do you notice that? The Lord in verse 24, the Lord in verse 25, the Lord in verse 26. So we're, we're structurally separating some things in that in each case after Lord, two verbs are given. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That's a little bit of a longer statement, sure. And then in verse 26, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So three, three uh, pronouncements or contents of the blessing each beginning with the word Lord, each having two verbs. I think we can emphasize something else about the structure. It, it seems likely to me that the first verb and the second verb have a relation with each other. So that bless you and keep you means God blesses you with this result. You are blessed in such a way that you're kept. Or in the second uh, pronouncement, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that God making his face to shine upon you is with the result that he is gracious to you, or that is its effect, so to speak. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, that the receiving of peace from God is the result of his uplifted face above his people. So that each of these verbs are uh, formed in three pairs of two, bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. If I were to take away the name Yahweh in each of these cases and just focus on the content, bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And let's not count it in English because the Bible in the Old Testament, number six here was written in Hebrew. And um, in number six, there are 12 words in Hebrew. Um, this seems significant. It's not often I'll draw attention to something that minute, but there are 12 tribes of Israel. And so if the sons of Aaron are to share with the tribes of Israel this particular blessing, it is a blessing whose content numbers 12 words. Not 11, not 13, but to a people of 12 tribes, a blessing of 12 words, and the blessing is of God himself. One of the ways this should be symbolized in their own midst is the way they're arranged. They're ordered around the camp, or the camp rather is around the tabernacle. You got people in the east, north, west, and south sides making camp with the tabernacle at the center. That's to communicate, I think, that the very center of their communal life ought to be God, knowing him, approaching him, praying to him, worshiping him, obeying him, that the thoughtfulness of their lives is directed by God in their midst. This is not some creator who's aloof and removed from their world but active and among them and revealing and speaking, guiding, redeeming, saving, and keeping covenant. When we look at verses 24 to 26 most specifically, um, I think it is best to look at one expression at a time in verse 24. Look at this first pair with me. 
the Lord bless you and keep you. And the you there, it doesn't say y'all, which, uh, you know, y'all is evidently plural. Sometimes when you just see the word you, it's not clear if that's singular or plural. This is actually singular here. The Lord bless you. The individual Israelite had a corporate identity, but also was to experience the individual knowledge and fellowship with God. Would they receive him? Would they respond to him? Would they delight in him? The priests would pray that these Israelites, that every one of them would know and fellowship with God. The Lord bless you and keep you. Now, if the Israelites uh, were filling out a survey of what it meant for them to be blessed, they might include things like, okay, well, we've been promised land because Abraham, our patriarch, was promised land from Genesis 12. And so they might think, well, God's blessed us in that he has a space, a sacred space we're going to inherit. And that would be true. They might think about general health and prosperity, blessings in terms of their economic situation and provision, the stability of their families and onward move to the uh, promised land. They might even think about deliverance from their enemies where people would rise against them or even in their recent history, the enslavement by those Egyptians and God has redeemed them out by his mighty hand and outstretched arm. In all of these ways and more, they are a blessed people. In other words, God has, in blessing them, he has looked upon them and acted for their good. He has blessed them. And he's blessed them with a number of ways that ultimately is to give them himself. Bless you and keep you refers to people being kept like guarded. You could supply the word guarded there, and that would get right on the nose of what's meant. The Lord bless you and guard you. To be protected like a shepherd protects the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd, the Israelites will say. His rod and staff comfort me, right? Even in the presence of my enemies, he puts a table together for me. The valley of the shadow of death, he leads me. I'm going through that with goodness and mercy behind me. I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. These are a people who, if they know this God in covenant, they are a people who know that God has not decided to deal with them infrequently or on occasion, but rather has set them apart that they might be kept, guarded, like a shepherd guards his sheep. God was to bless them and then preserve them. This is not something that he just dallies with and dabbles with. Oh, among all the nations, let me fool with the Israelites for a bit and then we'll... No, this is, this is, these are people who know the promises and covenants of God in the Old Testament and who trust by the priestly blessing here that God blesses and keeps. In the second expression, verse 25, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. God making his face shine. This is interesting language because it's clearly not meant to be literal. God did not have some sort of literal face in the lives of the ancient Israelites that they could draw or sketch out. Uh, In fact, this is clearly meant to be understood by the Israelites as a metaphor for God's presence. And yet it's highly relational. I mean, if you were sitting down at a table with someone to share a meal and they never looked at you, in fact, they actually turned their face from you, it would be quite awkward. And you might be thinking, I'm not sure, I'm not sure we're on the same page here about this exchange. You know, I'm, I came here to commune, to fellowship, but this person's face isn't even toward me. The Lord make his face to shine upon you is a picture of welcome into his presence and not a hiding of God's face. 
More on that in a moment. But the Lord making his face shine reminds us of Moses' own experience individually. Didn't Moses, in Exodus, experience the effects of the shining glory of God when he is on the mountain and communing with God? It tells us in Exodus 34, 35, that he would return with his face aglow. What a shocking thing that seems to be. And even somewhat disturbing or unnerving. And Moses would even veil his face because we're told that Moses would put the veil until he went to go speak with the Lord again. The glory of God would cause the face of Moses to shine. And not only was God to shine on Moses, Moses' experience was a foreshadowing, a glimpse, if you will, of what God had intended for all the people of God ultimately. That they know God face to face. That his face would shine upon them favorably. If you had someone's face shining upon you, that's a, a picture, I think, of warmth, welcome, illumination. All of that's good. That's the opposite of rejection or some kind of uh, stale experience or exchange. Making his face shine leads to being gracious. You see, the Israelites don't deserve to dwell with the Lord. They did nothing to be created. And once they were image bearers, we see the stories in Genesis and Exodus of constant rebellion among image bearers against the one true God. And what has God as the creator done with sinners in this world? He has by grace pursued them to rescue them, to love them, to enter into covenant with them, to keep his promises with creatures made in his image. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Being gracious is language of grace. So if someone says, well, I would like you to be gracious to me, well, they're wanting you to show them grace. In this posture, the Lord's shining face is with the result that God's grace is experienced and received by the people. It's undeserved. It's mercy. It is amazing grace. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Then the third expression, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is not only the turning of the face to God, but a lifting up of countenance with a kind of glad or smiling posture. Um, people who have studied this uh, phrasing and written about this countenance lifted up, they say things like this. This speaks of an appearance expressing pleasure and affection equivalent to our language of a smile. That the Lord has what we could see here with this language, a delight and a gladness over his people and with them. That he welcomes people to his presence gladly. This is not a posture of begrudgingness, is it? This is not some reluctant, um, easily inconvenienced, impatient, who are you coming into, you know, get off my lawn kind of thing. No, this is instead, he's lifting up his countenance over the people. It is this exalted smile and delight in the midst of these sinners. And it tells us in verse 26, and give you peace. The last word of this blessing is the word shalom. The last word and the seventh word of this particular verse, signaling with this final and climactic term what we need as sinners that in our sin we are alienated from, a peace with God. 
Our only hope is that the creator of all things will be the redeemer of sinners and posture toward us with mercy and graciousness that the result would be peace with God. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. It's a way of depicting the state of his face. And giving you peace means that his countenance or the expression is one of welcome and reconciliation and delight. All of this is very different from other postures the Lord might have toward the wicked. For example, in Deuteronomy 31, 17, my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will hide my face from them and they will be devoured. And then in Deuteronomy 31, 18, I will surely hide my face because of the evil they've done. They've turned to other gods. Well, two different postures there with the face of God, isn't it? There's one, uh, like in number six, where God's face shines and is lifted up in his countenance. And then in the other case, in Deuteronomy, it is a warning of God hiding his face. This metaphorical language is about whether one will experience the blessing and life of God in number six or the judgment and ruin due to sin from Deuteronomy 31. And part of what communicates that language is what God does with his face. Lifting it up with shining countenance to be gracious and merciful and grant peace or hiding his face. And therefore, that meaning devastation for the people. We don't want the God who hides his face in, uh, in the sense of Deuteronomy 31's warning. We want God shining upon us with graciousness and granting peace. We don't want the judgment due to our sin. We don't want what it would result in for God to withhold his favor. And that's what his shining face seems to signify. Undeserved favor, unmerited graciousness, and compassion to sinners. Well, with these three expressions, three statements of two verbs apiece, and the first verb in each of these pairs probably being the general idea within a result, blessing leading to keeping, making his face shine leading to graciousness, lifting up his countenance resulting in peace, He says in verse 27, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel. Well, his name's been included quite explicitly. Verse 24, the Lord. Verse 25, the Lord. Verse 26, the Lord. It's Yahweh. It's the name by which he has made himself known in the book of Genesis forward. So shall they put my name. So that blessing the people of God, it's as if they are once again binding the people unto God that they would receive his graciousness and mercy as the people who are known, loved, and redeemed by God. They are the people who bear his name. In fact, they should take his name seriously. The third commandment says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. They are the people who know this God and ought to worship him and not worship idols. So through this blessing and in these pronouncements, once again, the people are reminded of their identity. They are not people of some independent reality, um, void of any significance to creator, redeemer, or history with uh, their Egyptian exodus. Instead, they are a people defined by this God who has redeemed them and now has given them his law and is leading them to a land of promise. They have his name on them. And his resolve is clear in verse 27. The confirmation of the blessing in this verse. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Now this blessing in these three double paired uh, statements here, these three expressions had such influence in the history of Israel that we must take a few minutes thinking about 
how language later in the Old Testament recalls this language. And I would love for us to think about these scriptures that I'm going to show us in just a moment and, and never read those the same again after thinking of number six and realize how influential in shaping that language becomes. One instance would be Psalm 44. And Psalm 44, 3, For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and arm and the light of your face, that's what did it. The light of your face, for you delighted in them. In other words, you turned your face toward them with favor and life and blessing. That's why the land is theirs. It's not because their arms were so strong. It's not because their swords were so sharp. It's because your face was toward them. Had you hidden your face, it doesn't matter the swords they had or the arm strength they could possess. It was the highlighting of the light of the face of God favorable toward the people with compassion and covenant-keeping, steadfast love. And the priests would, would pray this at the temple with the people in Jerusalem when Solomon built it. They would pray over the people who would gather and pronounce the blessing of number six, this ironic benediction. Psalm 67 is another example from the Psalms. May the Lord God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Well, hello. I mean, that's all over. That's all over number six. Being gracious to us, bless us, make his face shine. Absolutely an amen. Where's that language come from? We'll see the psalmist is singing and writing having been influenced by earlier scripture. They know the Torah. They know Genesis through Deuteronomy. The psalmist has the word of God in him, in his mind, and in his pen. So that when he's praying, what comes out are the prayers based on God's own commitment. I will bless them, God had said. And so the psalmist prays that, sings that. In fact, in Psalm 67, it says to let your face shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth and your saving power among all the nations and let all the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Well, that's concern for a lot bigger agendas than just national Israel in the ancient world. This is a psalmist who's recognizing that promise to Abraham and covenant with Abraham always had a multinational goal, didn't it? In Genesis 12, he says, through your family, I will bless the families of the earth. And that means in Psalm 67, when the psalmist, this is all before Jesus, right? Let's just remind ourselves of the timeline here. We're prior to Christ. And in Psalm 67, this psalmist is singing and praising God using language from number six. But he longs for the Lord to so shine and, and show such mercy that the nations, the peoples, would praise God. In Psalm 80, the language of number six is part of a refrain. Restore us, O Lord, let your face shine that we may be saved. You see, part of these lyrics were actually part of our song tonight, Shine on Us, in the chorus part. In Psalm 80, verse 7, Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. And then a final time in Psalm 80, in verse 19, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. If you fast forward to other Psalms in Psalm 121, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Think about that language keeping for a moment. What was the first petition in verse 24 here? The Lord bless you and keep you. 
And here's the psalmist saying, He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. In Psalm 121.7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. He'll keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And then we're told in Psalm 134, verse 3, the Lord bless you from Zion. The Lord bless you from Zion. That's language about Jerusalem where the temple had been built. Sometimes it became known as Mount Zion or the city of Zion. Well, why would, why would blessing emanate and come out of Jerusalem? Because of the priestly benediction that started in the days of the tabernacle. Picture with me, like gathering around a campfire where the warmth and the light are emanating out of that fire for everybody gathered near it. And here are these people gathering around the tabernacle and the source of blessing in life. It's as if it is overflowing and emanating out to bless and overcome the uh, sinful uh, state and idolatries of the people to be compassionate and gracious to them, to bless them and reconcile them, to forgive them and save them. It's as if it's flooding out from Zion in the best of ways. It's not always this way in the priestly experiences. In the last book of our Old Testament ordering, we see in Malachi a different situation. And it's near the end of the Old Testament era. And in Malachi chapter 1, we don't get this impression that the priests are committed to the people with this language of blessing. It says in chapter 1 verse 9, God says, uh, in chapter 1 verse 8, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, isn't that evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. Well, with such a gift from your hand, will he show any favor to you? This idea of coming in the name of God and pleading that he would be gracious, that he would show favor like the light of his presence, when they actually are not glorifying the Lord. They don't want to worship him rightly. They're rejecting his word. They're living in abominations and idolatries and immoralities. They are not bothered by the corruption. And even the priests themselves are complicit in such rebellion. And God is, God is essentially saying to them, you really think you're going to come and utter these words into the air of this priestly book? I'm going to hide my face from you. My face is not favorably disposed toward you. I'm going to hide my face from you in judgment. And when we leave the Old Testament, I think about passages in the New Testament that capture these, these tones and imagery and language. The good news of the gospel shows how this prayer from number six is fulfilled in Christ. In Christ, we have been blessed. When the Lord uh, says to Moses, you say to Aaron and his sons, you guys say to Israel, the Lord bless you and keep you. Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Yeah, the Lord bless you and keep you. Well, indeed, in Christ, it has never been more profoundly realized or experienced than in our union with him. He even taught us to pray in certain ways that remind us about God's need to keep us and guard us, like Matthew 6.13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or language that might remind us of the need for God's graciousness upon our sinful selves when we pray in Matthew 6.12 to forgive us our debts. What is it that we need? We need the graciousness of God, the shining face of God. We need the peace of God. 
We need to be kept. We need to be guarded. Now, I did say a moment ago that in the days of these ancient readers, it's not as if they could take a picture of the Lord's face and sketch it. But the word would become flesh. And in Matthew chapter 17, the Lord Jesus, the incarnate son, he ascends the mountain and is transfigured before them. And what comes from his face? But light and shining glory. Shining glory from the very face of Christ, witnessed there by multiple disciples and beheld there by Moses and Elijah who appear. Moses, having not seen in the days of Numbers what he then beholds in Matthew 17 with the incarnate Son of God. And what has Christ come to do? But indeed to grant us the things that number six has longed for sinners to receive, to be kept to have the graciousness of God upon us and abiding with us, and to have peace. Jesus himself says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. At the climax of his earthly time, prior to his ascension, there is this grand moment at the end of Luke 24. Not many weeks ago, we were finishing up Luke's gospel, I know, and I tried to draw your attention there. I forget whether I said everything then that I'm going to say now because I've slept a lot since then. But nonetheless, at the end of Luke 24, there is this amazing moment of high priestly overtones. Notice in Luke 24, 50, and in verse 50 and 51, he leads them out as far as Bethany, and then here's what Jesus does. He lifts up his hands like a high priest. Something greater than Aaron is here, though. He lifts up his hands and he blessed them. And then while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. You see, these Israelites in Jesus' day aren't missing things like this. They know what it is like for someone to lift up their hands and pronounce a blessing. That's what priests do. They know that because that's what the first five books of their Old Testament teach. It's the foundation for all of their faith and practice. It's a priestly act. And here, something greater than Aaron has arrived. And he's died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. He doesn't descend from the tribe of Levi. He's a king and he's a priest. He's like Melchizedek, Hebrews tells us. Something greater than Aaron is here indeed. That means not only is he greater than Aaron, his blessing In the very pronouncement of his words, he's not like someone who is depending on the power of the Lord to work through those words. His power is the power of the Lord. His authority is the authority of the Lord. This is different from Aaron and his sons. They were dependent, weren't they? In verse 23, to bless the people. But in verse 27, it would be the Lord blessing through them. Oh, the blessing of Christ is the blessing from God. The the words and authority of Christ is divine authority. This is greater than any earthly priest they've ever known. Not only is something greater than Aaron is here, we can even think about the keeping language that Jude tells us. In Jude 24 and 25, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. To him be glory. So when there's this doxology language celebrating the fact that God's people in the new covenant are a people who will be kept. They are kept by God. 
ultimately answering prayers like number six, verses 24 through 26. And then lastly, I love the way Paul describes what we've experienced at our conversion. I love the way he uses the imagery of creation, but even through a thread that weaves into uh, number six all the way to the message of the gospel proclaimed in the New Testament. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, these words which tell us what has happened to us. One of the ways to describe what's happened to us in Christ is with this. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, what number six would lay out for the people would be something ultimately experienced and kept in the eons to come because of the saving work and redemptive plan in Christ. Kept in Him. Face shining upon us in Him. Countenance and peace because of Him. Graciousness and forgiveness of sin because of Him. Blessed now and forevermore because of Him. Oh, someone greater than Aaron is here. And the Lord Jesus, the great high priest, the one that every other priest and high priest was a type and a shadow of, it is the Lord Jesus who is the one authoritatively speaking and bringing to pass the hope of Aaron's blessing. And so why, while I did say last week regarding the Nazarite vow, I don't look at number 6, verses 1 to 21, as something that ought to be operative in the behavior and disciples' life in the New Covenant, uh, like it did in the Old Covenant community of Israel. I don't think believers should be taking Nazarite vows for those reasons that I laid out. But this is different. This is language about what God has made his people to experience. The gift of knowing him in glory. The gift of unending life and fellowship with God. That is made possible in and because of Christ. So I do think we can pray and rejoice in words of this blessing of verses 24 to 26. Knowing that this language receives its highest peak and deepest significance in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.